Good morning. It's good to see all of you here uh, on behalf of my wife and myself, but I think I can speak for the rest of your church staff. We are very grateful for your um, wonderful love and the appreciation that you have shown to us. We're very thankful for the opportunity to serve in this place. This is an absolutely wonderful church, and um, uh, that's not lost on me. I don't think that it's lost on the others who are able to serve here. Um, um, I have friends in the ministry that I have the opportunity to engage with and interact with. And um, I can just say that I believe that, that this church is truly blessed of God. And I think that I, as your pastor, am very, very blessed by God to be able to serve in this place. Um, and, and, and I just thank you from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity that you have given me to be your pastor. And I tell a lot of the folks who've joined the churches here and have been over the last few years, um, a typical refrain that I will say to them is you could go to church anywhere and, you know, you, you can't sling a dead cat around here and not hit a church. So there's plenty of them. Um, edit that out, please. That's why I use a manuscript, people. There's a lot of churches. You could go to any of them. The fact that you come here and you give me and you give the others who are on this staff an opportunity to be your pastor, I can tell you it's truly a humbling and, and gracious uh, act on your part. It's one that we don't take lightly. It's one that we truly, truly appreciate. And so I'm grateful to be your pastor, and I'm thankful for you as a church family. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As we continue our study in these letters that the Lord wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, these, these letters occur in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, and, and we've been looking at them, and, and uh, over the course of our study, I've mentioned a number of times thus far that uh, each letter that the Lord wrote is unique. It's uniquely crafted for the individual church to whom He is writing. Um, and, and in that regard, every message is, is, is unique in and of itself. But as we've also seen now as we come into this fourth letter, uh, there's a lot of similarities between each of these letters as well. Not only in their format, Jesus uses similar, very similar format in every one of His letters, but also we've seen at least a couple times, and we'll see even more today, that in the message that Jesus communicates is similar among some of the churches. Last week, we studied the letter written to the church in Pergamos. And based upon our study of that letter, we came to understand that those believers in Pergamos uh, had, had begun to compromise on the truth of the gospel and on issues of morality. And, and the application of that letter that I was able to bring forth last week just simply was this, is that the Lord is telling us through that letter to the church in Pergamos that though you and I may experience uh, temptation to compromise both morally and theologically, true believers and true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ are called to remain faithful to the Lord's divine revealed word. And then we are called to receive the reward of fellowship and eternal life that he offers us. Now, the reason that I wanted to kind of go back and provide you that recap from last week's uh, study is because the next letter that we are going to read and study today uh, really addresses similar issues. In fact, last week's sermon was, titled, was entitled, Hold Fast to the Truth of Jesus. 
And I really couldn't come up with a better title, so I entitled today's Hold Fast to the Truth of Jesus Part 2. Because the message is very similar, even though it's written to a different context. So we're going to talk again about what it means to have truth at stake within the confines of the church. And the church here that we're going to look at this morning that had allowed that truth to be influenced to its detriment by not an outside source, but by a source that had infiltrated its ranks. So with that as an introduction, let's get right into it this morning. Beginning in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2, hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, they are more than the first. The last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest In Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and we thank you for this this church family that you have brought together here at Ivy Creek. We're grateful for them. We're grateful for the ministry that you allow us to engage in in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would always be found faithful in holding him up, the one and true only God, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who died for our sins, that we might be reconciled to you. And we're grateful for that ministry and we're grateful for your word. Now I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This fourth letter... As you will note there on your outline, is written to the church in Thyatira. That's the first point on your outline. The church is Thyatira. That, and, and it should be noted that this is the longest letter that Jesus writes. Of all of the seven letters, this is the longest one. And which is interesting, particularly as, as, since, as one has put it, Thyatira was the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the seven cities to which Jesus writes. Thyatira was a military town. It was an outpost town. It was actually a town that was established to be sort of as a first line of defense 
for Pergamos. When invading uh, armies would have come through, they would have come to Thyatira before they came to Pergamos. And the idea was that Thyatira would put up enough of a fight to at least slow down the armies before they got to Pergamos. So in, in effect, Thyatira was a city that was built for destruction. It was built to go down so that Pergamos would never go down. It was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. It was about the same distance northwest of Sardis, which is the city, Lord willing, we will come to and look at that letter next week. Thyatira was known for its production of wool and linen and leather work and bronze work, and especially of the production of this little color, purple, purple dye. As a matter of fact, you might remember in, from your studies in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, that Paul was in the city of Philippi and he was down by the river. And while he was down by the river, he engaged with some women who were in prayer. And one of those women that he was engaging with was a lady named Lydia, who the Bible says was a certain woman who was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And it was through Paul's ministry to her there that we read that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And she became a believer and was baptized, her and all of her household. Now, many have surmised that once Lydia or perhaps some in her household actually left Philippi and went back to Thyatira, that they took that gospel message with them and began to establish the church there. But that fact, however, is something that we can only surmise about because the Scripture does not give us any concrete evidence with regard to that. What we do know is, though, that because of the various trades that Thyatira was known for and were prevalent in that city... The city boasted of many active trade guilds, what we would today most closely assemble with unions that were established there. And each of these guilds had their own patron deity from the, 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 the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods. And in fact, for a person to have successfully earned a living in Thyatira at one of these trades that the city was known for, they would have had to have joined one of these guilds which were known for their seasonal festivities and their seasonal feasts in which they sacrificed food to idols. And, 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 and then they also, those, those foods that they said, those, those feasts tended to end up in, in drunken orgies and all kinds of debauchery would take place at the end of those. And so you can imagine for, for a follower of Christ living in the city of Thyatira, who desired to earn a living, it would have been a very, very difficult environment for them to live in. Challenging to say the least. Scholars and historians also point out that unlike Pergamos, which we looked at last week, where there were at least three temples set up for the exact purpose of, of emperor worship, that was really not the, the, the emphasis in the city of Thyatira. In fact, the, the emphasis there was on the worship of the god Apollo, who was considered to be the son of Zeus, which is an important point to note because the Lord introduces himself to the church in Thyatira in verse 18 this way. He says, these things says the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. You see, the Lord uses this term, the Son of God, there, and it's the only time that He uses that term of Himself in the entire book of Revelation. Danny Aiken notes that in contrast to the false god Apollo, whose worshipers claim that He was the Son of Zeus, Jesus actually declares Himself to be the true Son, the Son of the living God. Aiken goes on to write this. He says, Apollo is a piddly, pathetic, pseudo-Son God, while Jesus is the eternal, majestic Son of God. 
I like that. In fact, it is his divine majesty in declaring himself to be the son of God that alerts us to the second point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. You'll notice it there. We're going to look at Christ's character. And what we learn is that he is a supreme authority. He is the supreme authority. The title son of God that Jesus uses for himself communicates to his readers that he is the supreme authority. There is no other to be reckoned with. He alone is the supreme God. And as the supreme authority, Jesus selects really two facts, two attributes about himself, which he wants to reveal to the church in Thyatira, which are give value and meaning to the message that he's going to deliver to them. First of all, he says he has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, note there on your outline, Jesus is all-seeing. He is all-seeing. His eyes penetrate and see all things with perfect clarity. Nothing was going on within the church there in Thyatira that he was not aware of and that escaped his notice. And I want you to know nothing was happening in these trade guilds or in the homes of these believers that made up the church there in Thyatira that he was not aware of. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4 verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In fact, down in verse 23, later in this same letter, you'll notice that Jesus declares he is the one who searches the minds and the hearts. And the only way that Jesus can do that, the reason why he is able to do that, is because he has eyes of fire who sees everything and knows even down to the intents of our hearts. He even understands the motives behind the things that we do. But notice he's not only all-seeing, he is also all-pure and all-powerful. He is all-pure and all-powerful. I put both of those descriptions for you there because Jesus describes himself as having feet like fine brass, or as some of your versions would put it, burnished bronze. The scholars are kind of divided on the interpretation of what, it, what that fine brass or that burnished bronze actually means. About half of them point to the fact that such a description uh, indicates that the metal, the brass, the bronze had been refined and it had been rid of any and all impurities. And as such, Jesus is presenting himself as being all pure and totally holy. And I think that's absolutely true. But the description could also point to Christ's complete and total power. In fact, it's argued that brazen feet stand for the immovable power of the risen Christ. You see, feet are not only are not only used to walk, but they're used to trample and they are used to stamp out. As we read in Revelation 19, verse 15, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That the Lord has feet like bronze reveals that he is one who takes action and he deals with the things that he sees. And so it is to these believers who lived there in the city of Thyatira in which it was hard to survive unless you went along with the, the swift current of the trade guilds that worshiped false gods and regularly engaged in immoral conduct that Jesus, the one and only true God, the supreme authority who sees everything and is all pure and is all powerful, He's the one who writes to them. And I want you to notice what He says. 
The next point on your outline is a commendation. He gives them a commendation, first of all, about their good works. He commends them for their good works. He says, I know your works. Well, of course he does. He's, he's God who has eyes of fire. So he's able to see all things. He says, I know exactly what you're engaged in. But notice that this same Jesus that, whose eyes penetrate everything, he doesn't go on to name all of those works. In fact, I would suggest to you that what he does is he says, I know that you have good works. And he even understands the, the, the undergirding attitudes underneath that. Notice what they are. They had engaged in good deeds and they were motivated to do good works because of their love and their service and their faith and their patient endurance. Now, that's a pretty good list. I, I cannot imagine having the Lord say something that would be much more commendatory than that. I know about your, I know the things that you're doing and you're doing it because of your love and your service and your faith and your patient endurance. One, one has written their love provided the motivation for their service and their faith provided motivation for their patience. And this then was a church that served others in love and endured with confident faith in God. That's a good, that's a good word from the Lord Jesus. Notice that's not all. Not only did the Lord commend them for their good works, He also commended them for their growing works. The last half of verse 19, He tells them, As for your works, the last are more than the first. The last are more than the first. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott points out that the church in Thyatira understood that the Christian life is a life of growth. It is a life of progress. It is a life of development. The church of Thyatira was exceeding the works it did at first. G. Campbell Morgan has also pointed out that in Thyatira there had been progress and development. The outward and evident activity of the church had broadened and it had deepened. Now, of course, the church is comprised of individual believers who with one mind and with one heart put their collective hands to the plow to work for the cause of Christ. The good and the growing works of the church in Thyatira came only as a result of the collective efforts of its individual members working together. And Jesus commends them for what he sees them do. And I believe that this is a pretty good place for us to pause and ask ourselves, can the same be said of us? When the Lord, whose eyes still blaze with fire and penetrate into everything that you and I do, when He stares into my life and when He stares into your life, and when He takes account of the works that you and I do for Him, will His evaluation be one of commendation in which He says that we are growing? and we're developing, and we're progressing, that with regard to our works, the latter are more than the first? Or will his assessment be that we're standing still, or even worse, that we've fallen back? I've very often heard folks say this phrase, I've been there and I've done that. 
And I want you to know that's a good phrase to say if you are using it as a means of being able to encourage someone who's going through a difficult time and you can look at them and say, I've been where you are and I understand what you've done and I've done that and so let me encourage you. Those are wonderful words. But if you use the phrase been there and done that as a way of being able to shirk the responsibilities that are in front of you and to be able to use that as an excuse for not taking on the responsibilities that Christ has really put in front of you, then let me tell you, I really believe that you will use that as an excuse and you will not earn the commendation of God. The scriptures testify that the life of faith is one of growth and progress. In fact, Paul rejoiced with the church in Thessalonica because he writes in 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. He says, your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Such words echo the commendation given by our Lord to the church in Thyatira. They had good works but they had growing works and they were not only growing wide, they were growing deep in the faith. But I want you to notice that this commendation is immediately followed by a word of condemnation. He says, nevertheless, in spite of all the good works, in spite of all the growing works, Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you allow or you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus's condemnation of this church centers upon their toleration of a woman who had come into the church with notice this in three successive forms, an illegitimate claim who enticed the church to commit immorality and then engage in idolatry. She had an illegitimate claim and enticed the church to engage in morality and then to further engage in idolatry. Now, it should be noted that most likely there was not a woman in this church named Jezebel. That, that just is probably what Jesus is doing there. It's the same thing that he did when he wrote to the church in Pergamos. When he wrote to the church in Pergamos, he used the example of Balaam that was an Old Testament character who illustrated what was happening in this New Testament church with the Nicolaitans. Here, Jesus, I believe, is using an Old Testament example of, of this woman Jezebel as a way of being able to expose what was taking place within the New Testament church in Thyatira and the teaching that was taking place and was being tolerated there. You'll recall from your previous studies in, in Scripture that Jezebel was the wife of Israel's king Ahab of whom it is written in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all of the kings who came before him. He was the worst king that Israel had up to the time when he came. And according to 1 Kings 16, verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And one of the things, one of the key failures of Ahab was his marriage to this woman Jezebel, who was a foreigner. And she was the daughter of Ethbaal, who, who was a pagan priest who had become the king of Sidon. He had ascended to the throne because he had the previous king murdered. And so he became this king of Sidon. And Jezebel, because, because of, of, of 
Ahab's desire to want to consolidate power and to have that kind of power. He married her, but she was a wicked woman and she enticed the nation of Israel to add Baal worship to their religious ceremonies. In fact, her evil influence was such that the entire nation of Israel turned to Baal worship. Now, by the time that Jesus writes this letter here in the book of Revelation to this church, in Thyatira, Jezebel of the Old Testament had been dead for nearly 1,000 years. But Jesus draws attention to her because, as one has put it, Jezebel was a symbol for a seductive form of evil that not only allowed for idolatry, but promoted it. And not only allowed for adultery, but encouraged it and even rewarded it. You see, likely what was happening in the church in Thyatira was that A woman had been allowed to come in and operate within the confines of the church just as Jezebel had been allowed to come into the confines of Israel. And she was a self-proclaimed prophetess who evidently taught believers how to compromise with the Roman religion and the practices of those particular trade guilds so that the Christians would not lose their jobs and they wouldn't lose their lives. And the fact that Jesus highlights that this Jezebel calls herself a prophetess indicates that her claim was not a legitimate claim. She called herself a prophetess, but, but we know that she was not a true prophetess because her teaching and her example differed from the revealed Word of God. Listen, Aiken provides a good word here. He says, anything or anyone that gets your eyes off of Jesus is not of God. Anything or anyone that minimizes or adds to the gospel is not of God. Anything or anyone that compromises on biblical truth is not of God. The impressiveness of their abilities, their gifts, and their visions makes no difference. They're not of God if they don't agree with God's Word and if they don't teach God's message. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that we are to test the spirits. We are to test them according to 1 John 4 verse 1 to see if, they, if what they teach conform to God's Word. This Jezebel's teaching did not. She likely boasted of having received new revelations from God and new understandings that put her and those whom she could influence on a higher realm. She evidently had been able to convince some of those in the church the entire Thyatira that she had tapped into some of the secret mysteries of, of God and, and, and through private revelation, she could allow them to experience a more freer and more mature life. And such teaching ultimately led to behavior that was similar, if not identical, to the behavior that the church in Pergamos was guilty of, sexual immorality and idolatry. And Jesus is confronting the church in Thyatira because they were tolerating such teaching. It's interesting to compare this letter to the church in Thyatira with the first letter that we read, the, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. If you'll recall there, G, the, the, the main problem with the church in Ephesus was that they had left their first love. But Jesus commended that church because he says, you, you do not abide with the th- false teaching. And he said, and you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What's interesting is that the church in Ephesus was backsliding because they had lost their first love, but they still knew what was wrong and they fought against it. Here, the church in Thyatira is commended for their love, but they are rebuked for tolerating false teaching and sinful behavior. 
Stott writes, the Christians of Thyatira seem to have either a very poor conscience or a very feeble courage. They were as weak and spineless toward this new Jezebel as Ahab had been toward the old one. But notice what we read next in verse 21. Jesus tells the church in Thyatira, He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. That, now that leads me really to the next point that I want you to know. You see, when we are confronted with our sinfulness, and, and let me say this, every single person that made up the church in Thyatira was a sinner, just as every single person that makes up the church of Ivy Creek Baptist Church is a sinner. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, listen, when we are confronted with our sinfulness, there is only one response. Notice it next. It is the response, the corrective action of repentance. You've heard me say this time and time again, but the reason that I repeat it is because the Scriptures repeat it over and over and over again, and that is repentance must be the heartbeat of every single individual, and it must be the heartbeat of every single believer. The Scriptures teach us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is patient. He is long-suffering. He is not wanting any, any to perish, but rather for all to come to repentance. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel chapter 33 that the Lord declares, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, says the Lord, for why should you die? That is what it means to repent. It means to turn. It means to stop and begin traveling in the opposite direction. And in this case, the Lord had been giving this Jezebel time to repent, time to stop her false teaching and influencing the church there in Thyatira, time to stop her sexually immoral lifestyle, time to stop lifting her heart in worship to other gods. But she had refused to repent. And notice this. The Lord had shown great patience. With her. I am amazed by that. My typical response is I'm going to tell you once, and after that, I'm done. The Lord had shown patience, He had given her time. I'm amazed at how far God will go in extending grace and mercy to a sinner like me. But notice that there's a limit to how long he will allow such a one to go on in their unrepentant state. The one whose eyes are like burning fire and whose feet are like fine and burnished bronze will take action. And he clearly states that he will not only bring punishment upon this Jezebel, but upon those who have followed after her and who refuse to repent. He tells the church in verses 21 and 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Stott writes this, he says, Her punishment will fit her crime. The scene of her wickedness will be the scene of her judgment. Her bed of sin will become a bed of suffering and the pleasures of sin will give place to the pains of affliction. 
G. Campbell Morgan states it this way. He says, the woman who has taught and seduced Christ's servants shall find her destruction in the midst of the very corruption which she has created. The point is this. The Lord passed his judgment upon this Jezebel. It's too late for her. In the process, he issues a strong rebuke to the believers for tolerating such false teaching and for allowing it to go unchecked within the church. And in telling them what he is about to do, he is providing one last warning to those who still have time to repent. He says, either separate yourself from this evil teaching and lifestyle or I will send great tribulation your way. I will give to each one of you according to your works. But notice this letter is still not done. You see, there were those in Thyatira who had not relented. There were those who had not given themselves over to the teacher of this Jezebel. There are those who had not been infected by the wicked evil virus that she had brought. And to them, Jesus gives a command. That's your sixth point there. He gives the command to hold fast. Hold fast. Note what our Lord says once more in verses 24 and 25. He says, Now to you I say, and the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Jesus does not add any burden to these believers other than holding to the truth that they were already in receipt of. Effectively, he tells them, not to be led away by any new mysteries or perplexities or new revelations. The only burden that he lays upon them is that they stick to what they've already been taught. He says, stick with me, Jesus tells them. Don't follow the seduction of Satan or the doctrine of demons. Hold tight to what you have until I come back for you. I like what one has said. He says, holding on to Jesus and the gospel and biblical truth will not be easy. Satan, Jezebel, and her children will continue to try to steal those precious things from you. But don't let go. Stay where you are. You have Jesus, and He is all that you need. That leads me to the last point on your outline. It's the familiar call that Jesus tends to end every one of His letters with. Only this time He reverses the order. The call prior to this in the first three letters is the call to comprehend and conquer. But in this letter and in the subsequent letters that he writes, he changes the order and he begins with conquer and then comprehend. I don't have a reason for why he does it. I just know that he does. I'm just leaving that out there for you. But he starts this way. He says, I want you to overcome. I want you to conquer. And Jesus promises two things to those who conquer. He promises authority or power over the nations. And then he promises the receipt of the morning star. In other words, he says those who hold fast to the truth of Jesus will be permitted to share in Christ's reign. They'll hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to give you charge over many things. But that's not all. The second promise that the Lord gives is that he promises himself. Stott writes, faithful Christians who have repudiated the standards of the world, controlled the desires of their fallen nature, and resisted the allurements of the devil will gain this bright and morning star. 
Rejecting Jezebel, they will receive Christ. They will be permitted to share not only in His authority, but also in His glory. I want you to know that's what it means to conquer. What it means to conquer is to hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Him because the promises that He has for you are infinitely greater than any of the things that the world could ever offer. And He is stronger than any of the opposition that the world can ever bring your way. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to it until He comes. That brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. The message of this letter, I believe, is very clear. It tells us that the Lord will judge the church and those believers who tolerate false teaching and corrupt morality, while those who hold fast to the true gospel will be rewarded in eternity. You see, this is where the message of this letter hits home with each of us. See, as one preacher put it, he's put it this way. He says, you can't have Jezebel, or he said, excuse me, he says, you can have Jezebel, or you can have Jesus, but you can't have them both. If you want Jesus, you must turn your back on Jezebel and turn your heart over to the Lord. Give to the Lord all that you are. And that includes your sin. That includes the stains from your past. You give that all to Him and you trust in Him as your Lord and your Savior. Come to Christ just as you are and you will find that He will never turn you away. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is right here in the middle of this letter and that is that Jesus is patient with sinners like me and you. He is patient with us. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But do not mistake this. He calls every one of us to repentance. He does not call us to continue to embrace things that go contrary to what His Word teaches. He calls us to faith in Him and then to a life of obedience in Him. To walk according to the ways that He has shown us according to His Word. Jesus is patient. He's long-suffering. For some of you, that's exactly what you need to know today because you do need to repent and you need to turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Others, well, perhaps you've bought into the wicked and evil lie that you can have your faith in Christ. You don't really have to be dogmatic about it. I mean, you can give up a little bit here and there just to get along in the world. The world's got a fast-moving current. You can just kind of get along to be along. You can blend Christianity with other religious beliefs. You, you don't have to believe everything the Bible says. I mean, after all, these are modern times and that's an ancient book. If you're buying into that notion, then I want you to know you're in danger of accepting the deceit and the lies of Jezebel. Jesus calls you to Himself. He is the only true Savior. He is the only one who came and died and rose from the dead so that your sins might be dealt with forever. It is only through Him that you can be saved. And He calls His followers to a life of obedience and surrender. Brothers and sisters, we must not allow ourselves to be deceived and we must not tolerate those who would shift us away from the truth. We must hold fast to the truth of Jesus because He is the only way. He is the only truth. And He is the only life. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness to us and Your mercy. We are thankful for Your patient endurance with us. 
when we remember such chasing after things of the world and false gods and surrendering ourselves to those things which brought us no good thing in our life. And you were patient. Lord, we also know that your patience with those who would deceive and, and strip away the truth from us, there is a limit. And you are calling us to not, to not engage in those kind of things that would, would take us off track and not allow those things to come in and, and to pull us away from the worship of the one true holy God. I pray that that message would resound loud and clear with us. I pray that the gospel of the good news of what Christ has done will, will still continue to go forth from this place and that it will continue to impact lives and that people will still come to faith in you and repent of their sins and trust in you. That you might be glorified and honored. That you might receive all of the praise and all the glory for you are truly one and only God to whom we should lift our hearts. And we do that this morning and we do it with reverence and with thankful hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.